Episode 1, Women's Voices, in the series Savannah to Suburbia, South Sudanese Australian Stories. My name's Jennifer Huxley, and in this series of podcasts, we'll hear the voices of South Sudanese Australians telling their own stories, stories that have become another strand in the richly diverse society that is modern Australia. Most of them came to Australia from refugee camps in Africa after escaping murderous civil war in Sudan. They lost parents, children, siblings, other family members, friends. They experienced violent displacement, famine, the rupturing of ordinary life. Many grew up separated from their families in refugee camps. Now they call Australia home. They're making new lives for themselves and their families in a country that offered them refuge, but which still has little knowledge of Sudan, its history, its culture, its religions or its people. They tell these stories as a way of connecting with other Australians and of increasing that knowledge about the South Sudanese in Australia, their lives, their losses, their survival, and their hopes for their children and grandchildren in this new country. Some stories have been told in other voices, where the original recordings were unclear. In future episodes, we'll hear of the experiences of the Lost Boys, who were caught up in the Second Civil War between the North and the South in Sudan. Some of the Lost Boys have already written about those experiences. Almost nothing has been published about how women and girls experienced the wars. In this episode, we'll hear from the women whose lives were also shattered by conflict, displacement and loss. The shooting started from the airport and quickly reached the whole town, which made everyone to leave to the villages. Bombing, burning houses and looting cows and sheep from the locals. That terrible attack made me and my family to leave the country heading towards Ethiopia. It was the time when I was separated by war with my husband and four children, two boys and two girls. Until now, I never heard about them, whether they are alive or dead. I was married before the war, blessed with five children, but I lost twins during the war. I lived in Wongale village before the war broke out in Boar Town, but after a month the war reached the village, which made me and my family leave the village, heading to a place called Malek, where I met many people who had left their villages and gathered there. 
The government armies were following our footsteps. They attacked us. We ran into the bushes. From there, I lost my beautiful twins. I left them in the bush and ran away for the safety of the remaining kids. We continued our journey to a camp called La Bonnie. We stayed there for some years because the area was under SPLA control. One night, another attack happened, so I decided to leave for Kenya. On our way, we camped at Chukadum for some days and then continued on our way to Kenya. My husband got killed on the way. From there, we were separated from my sister's family. The attack was on 16 of May, 83, at 5 a.m. It was a big shocking to the town. The, sh- the shelling began at airport until it reached Old Town. I tried to hide under the bed with my children, but the shooting became closer and they started raping women, looting people, belongings. The situation became very worse, which made me to leave the town. I lost my brother-in-law, stumbled on the big lock, fell on the ground, and broke his neck. We buried him there. It took us three days to reach the village, Wangulei. These stories of the loss of children, parents and husbands, of the deaths and forced abandonment of newborns would be poignant in any culture. For a society where the rituals around birth, death and marriage are central to social connectedness and identity, they constitute a rupture to the heart of social and personal life. Almost all aspects of a woman's life in South Sudan are influenced by marriage. It's marriage and the bearing of children that shape a woman's experiences, her status and her responsibilities. As a central social institution, marriage involves whole families and ties together separate kinship groups, affecting alliance, descent and personhood, and shaping the social relations of entire communities. Traditionally, the roles of both men and women within a marriage were clearly defined and strictly enforced, with women's roles focused on the home and the rearing of children. In rural communities, men were responsible for looking after the cattle, fishing and often farming. Women grew crops, did the cooking, looked after the children and the husband. Girls were married while they were still young, usually in their late teens, and education was not seen as a priority for them. There were exceptions to this. My father, William, who was the first Dinka officials who were working with the white people at that time, in earliest in 30s, 30-something, year, uh, 1930-something, he was working as an agriculture official and uh, and I'm born to my mom. My mom was the second uh, 
wife of uh, my father, uh, because uh, Dinkas used to marry so many women. So my 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 father got uh, thirteen wives, and my mother was the second wife. Uh, we were I was or we were the first. Uh, uh, girls taken to his schools because my father was educated and knows uh, the, the benefit or the goodness of the school girl to be put into the school. So we were taken to the school with uh, four of us. Uh, we were taken uh, with my second uh, step uh, sister to elementary school uh, in Bahar al Ghazal, in Rumbek. And there, from there, we were in the school until uh, the year four or the fourth year, and then we were examined. And uh, I, I, I went through, or I, I passed the exams, and I went to 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 Equatoria. At that time, there were no many schools for girls, <coughs> so I went to Equatoria in Ye. Uh, in a greater Equatoria. As people moved into more urban areas, particularly in the period between the First and Second Civil Wars, there was a shift in some of these patterns of established family roles, though not in the basic principles. Twelve years, my mum decided for us to go and stay with my sister, my big sister, because that time his uh, husband is uh, working in the police mm -hmm. and no one can go th there in his home. When the war, we stay, I stay in Juba. I did my primary in Juba. I did my junior in Juba. We call a at that time. I finished uh, junior secondary school. I went to senior secondary school in Juba also. I finished sec uh, senior secondary school and I went to the college. I was teaching in Juba. In 1969, it became uh, peaceful. 1976, after agreement, a Disababa agreement, we moved back to, to Malakal, South mm -hmm. Sudan. Mm -hmm. The situation was good, the school, the life was good. I finished high school in 1981, and then I get married, 1981. Uh, this time, was the life was okay, no war, people are peaceful, no any problem. And then 19, 1983, and the war will start again. So many tribes in Malakal, because it's a town, we have nowhere Shuluk, Denka, Murle, uh, Anyuak. The majority in Malakale is Denka and Shuluk and Nuer. And then after that, I got married in 19... I think it's the end of 1981. I left Malakal. I went to Bor. I remember my mom used to go to work and I have to take care of my other brother, some I was young. I go to English school in in school Mahat Brahman school. I leave Juba during the war. 
when the war stopped during the war people have to run away you have to hide you have to dig the ground hide yeah when it's shelling you have to run near the river bank oh, it's very tough <laughs> very hard life no food nothing you just survive the eruption of the second civil war in 1983 disrupted these established patterns even further quiet a day time but at night the armies knock the doors raping women kill men and looting residents belongings that situation forces us to go to the village we escape at night when the soldiers attack the village i run to the bushes with my family for safety we used to hide at daytime and come home at night we survived like that until they finished all the cows sheep and there was no more farming one day they noticed that people hide at daytime and come home at night so they attacked us at midnight from there I left the village with my family to a camp called Labani South Sudan border to Uganda that area was under SPLA control we had food shelter and clothing from UNHCR i stayed there for some years and i moved to Kakuma refugees camp it took me 2 months to reach the camp the war broke out in 1983 i was about to start my intermediate but my education stopped then before i was able to start year 7 i spent that time in the village but there was no education and no health care in 1988 i got sick one of my uncles was a doctor but my father sent me to ethiopia with my sister we were able to go in an army car so it only took 3 days a lot of people were walking to ethiopia We spent two days in Pipor, on the way before we got to Benyudo, then Itang, and then Gambela, where there was a hospital. I had my appendix removed there in 1989. I got married in 1990. My firstborn was a girl. When the war broke out in Ethiopia in 1991, I was pregnant again. We had to run. I was separated from my husband. I got ferries to Poshala, then Narus. The second child was born in Kabolda. There was no clinic, no midwife. I gave birth in the traditional way with an old woman of experience. It's sad story sometimes. Yeah, in 1983 is the this time the war began. and we 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 used we in bor and then the government they came with the army yeah and this time we left bor we ran this time we ran to ethiopian border this time i was carrying my daughter my younger daughter despite these major disruptions culture runs deep A younger generation of women now living in Australia see the continuation of traditional family roles.
Like the Lost Boys and others, many women were forced out of Sudan into refugee camps in neighbouring countries, first in Ethiopia and later mainly to Kakuma in Kenya. There, they lived for up to a decade or more. For some, though not all of the women and their children, this provided some stability and even opportunities. Some were finally reunited with sons or brothers whom they'd not seen since they were small children. I arrived in Kakuma refugee camp on 14 of June 1992. Life was good because all the services provided by the UNHCR and NGOs were there. Schools, hospitals, food, water, shelters and clothing were provided. In Kakuma, I worked with Radaban as a preschool teacher and in the church as a mother's union secretary for five years. I was very young when the war broke out in Bortown. I couldn't explain what really happened. The only thing I could remember was the sound of guns. I thought that was thunder, but it was a gun. I tried to go and see, but my mum called me and we ran to the bush. We decided to go to the village and it took us two days to reach the village, Kongor. After some months in the village, another attack happened. So we ran to an island called Tosh for protection. We stayed there for some years. On that island, the only food we used to eat was fish. After the war settled a little bit, we came back to the village. From there I met my husband and we got married. We left for Ethiopia by foot with other people we met on the way. On our way we fell into an ambush planned by the Khartoum government. The death toll was 150 people and 80 people were injured. Some people drowned in the Kongkong River. We continued our journey of three months to Ethiopia. Life was good in Itang refugee camp because all the services provided by the UN were there. After a year in Itang, I gave birth to a baby boy. He died after two months. We left Ethiopia to go back to Sudan when the Ethiopian president gave orders to all the refugee camps in Ethiopia to leave the country immediately. We thought that they were going to give us some days to prepare for our journey, but that didn't work. The Ethiopian government sent soldiers to come and attack us in the camp. It happened at night time, so we ran to a place called Pakak on the South Sudan border with Ethiopia. We camped there for two weeks, then we decided to go back to the village. On our way, we fell into another ambush and my husband got killed in the battle. I couldn't see his body because I was on the run. I continued my journey with the other survivors to a place called Nasir. I gave birth to my second baby boy in Nasir. I stayed there for eight months. Then I continued my journey to the village. On the way, we used to hide in the bush during the daytime and walk at night until I reached Pangyagor, my hometown, with my son. Also, we used to eat tree leaves. It was a journey of three months. I decided to, to, to go back again to Kenya. 
where I heard that my children were in the camp, in Kakuma camp. So I went back in, in, uh, from Khartoum to, to Kenya. And I, then I was in the camp when I, where I found them. The, the camp was, uh, was uh, composed of just uh, so many women, the, the widows that uh, the husbands are killed and those who are uh, there to take care of their children. And there were so many women there. Uh, and uh, it was a very big camp, of, uh, which was uh, made by the UNHCR. And the schools were open, even the schools for blind and for deaf and all these. And the children were put into the schools and there was um, food ration from the UN and uh, this, the, the, the teachers and everything was well well made and established. It was a very big camp and uh, yes, uh, women were there and the children were in the schools and uh, later on when the children finishes year 12, that is uh, form 4, uh, that the children are so very thirsty of education and uh, we cannot uh, afford to take them to the unis and all these and if they can uh, help us and make us to the third or the third country where we will resettle and try to see uh, how well, can we bring up our children? So from there, our idea or our demand was taken to Geneva, where the UN is, and it was accepted that um, the women, especially the widows, uh, can be taken for a settlement, go to the third countries where they can go and resettle and make their lives and all this. I was born after the war had broken out between the South and the North. I don't know much about during that war because I was still little. In 1991, when Riek rebelled against John Garang, I was about four. That time was very bad. At night time, when we were sleeping, we could hear the guns. So my mum came and woke us up. We moved from our place. There was flooding at that time, with water around our area. It was the rainy season, so we went to the cattle camp in the night. My mum, my sister and brother, and me. We are five in our family. We were six, but we lost one brother, and my dad had died in 1989 after being sick. Our two older brothers left with the lost boys. We were so little at that time, but we left, the three of us and my mother. We spent about three days in the bush. There was so much rain and water and flooding. After about one week, we returned home. But after a day, the Nuer attacked our area. They took all the cattle and killed other people. We were left with nothing to eat. We just caught fish. We spent about one month with my mother. Then the soldiers came and drove the Nuer away from our village. After that, my mother was planning to take us somewhere where there were no Nuer, but she was sick and she died. I was five years old. We were left with our auntie in the village. That was from 1991 to 1993. 
After that, my uncle's wife came and took me and my brother. She had her three kids too. We were six altogether. She planned to go to Kenya. She left my sister with my auntie. We left from Panyagor in Twitch East. There were a lot of people and we travelled in convoy with the soldiers. The soldiers were in one truck and the civilians were in other trucks. We spent about three days on the road. It's a desert with no water. When we were in the desert, the Nuer came, but they just passed. We were nearly ambushed, but God saved us. We just missed them by a couple of minutes. For some of the women and their children, the forced destination was Khartoum, or cities in neighbouring countries, rather than refugee camps. After I grew up in Khartoum, I met my husband. We got married. Life was a bit better because my husband was working in a cotton factory. After, after a war broke out in South Sudan, they stopped my husband from work because he was from South. So we decided to go to South Sudan to a place called Rang. We stayed in Rang for two years and then the attack happened from nowhere. Two of my kids lost on the way. From there, we ran to the bush, heading towards Kosti, northern Sudan, and we cash train to Khartoum. Then my husband got sick and died after one month in Khartoum. Life in Khartoum was very difficult because I was jobless, no money to put my kids to school. I was living in my friend's house. From there, I made my mind to work as a housekeeping so that my kids get some money for school. After two years in Khartoum, I had good news that my lost kid ran to Egypt with their uncle. He found them on the way when, when they ran away from rank. From Egypt, their cousin sent them a form to come to Australia. I had to run from Juba to Khartoum, from Khartoum to Egypt, from Juba to Khartoum. We caught a plane. I left Khartoum because Khartoum was very hard. You couldn't find a good job. You had to cook, make beer, make local beer. If the police caught you, they would beat you, put you in prison. Who would look after your kids? You had to run if you saw them. It wasn't safe at all. So I tried to do my, le- my level best to go to a safe place. We got the train for two days. Then you had to get the boat. After the boat, you could get the bus or the train to Cairo. It is a long journey, five days. When we got to Egypt, we stayed there. It was me and my two daughters. One of them was six and the other one was three. When I came from Sudan to Egypt, I had to work. I found hair dressing was a good opportunity for work. I used to do hair for the Egyptian and a lot of different people, even white people. I used to work in a saloon in Madi. Sometimes, not all the times, but when they called me, I used to go and do it in people's houses to the girls, the women, their friends, different people. I became a mobile hairdresser. 
when we were in Cairo for four years, life was very hard, Egyptian. I have been beaten in the street. And one day I was going under a building and someone just poured water on me. Some people were good, some not good. It depends. But there were a lot of other South Sudanese people there. Some of the younger women remember only being displaced or growing up in refugee camps. And those memories are not all bad. So in Kakuma, that's where I met Gabriel. But I was little. But in our culture, if you like a girl, whether it is uh, underage, you can you can let her know that he loves you. But that's it. So Gabriel he left in 2001. He left to America, and then I came here to Australia. So when I came here. He heard that I've been here, so he's trying to find my phone and call me. So we're trying to talk on the phone. And after that, she planned to come and see me. Yeah, so she do his process through the university, and then she came here. So that's where we met Gabriel and me. It was after the war between Dr. Rek Mashahar and Dr. Young Garang began in 1991 that my family ran away from the village. In 1992, we traveled from Port to Mangala, from Mangala to Torit. When we were in Mangala, my mom died there. She delivered a baby and she died. We came to Torit and then to Ami in Uganda. That was the place where the little one died. She was about six months old. There was no milk. The life was tough. There were five of us, my father and my brothers and sisters. I was the little one. From Ami, we went to Ashua. The life there was better, not like Ami. My father got a job in Ashua. He was a watchman, a security guard in the United Nations compound. We could get a little bit of oil, some sorghum. I think we were there for about four years. But we had to leave Ashua when Dr. Mashar's troops came. We were there with parents, all people, and there was some militia with us. When the Mashar troops came, they killed them. So we went back to Mangala in 1994. Life was a little bit good there. The United Nations distributed some food. Our family was still together. After that, we came to Nimuli, which is a big town with different tribes. We were there for five years, but then we moved because it became dangerous. We went to Uganda to a town called Kubuku near the border. We were there for four years. Uganda was better than Sudan. I was only little during a lot of that time, so I don't really know all the story. I have heard it from other people, like my sister. I was with my family. My father really loved me. I was happy. I stayed in Uganda and we got, uh, and we got married in Uganda. We got married in the South Sudanese way. 
all the relatives from the girl side and the community from the man side they share the dowry after that they made a big celebration and now i am in australia so i was born in the kenyan refugee camp so because my brother my older brother jukuch he was born in ethiopia so mom, they went from Kakuma to Ethiopia to give birth, and then she came back to the refugee camp to oh, give okay. birth after, I was like seven years, obviously. <laughs> and then, so I was born there, and we weren't there for long, as much as I remember, we weren't there for long. But then my uncle, who brought us to Australia, got us a, like, visas, and then we went from, we went from the refugee camp to, pretty sure it was Uganda, and then from Uganda we came then we made our way to Australia. I was five turning six. It's a bit blurry because there was a lot going on at the time. But I remember bits, like if I like I think about it, I remember bits like where I lived, like where I would sleep. I remember one time I got bitten by a scorpion. I remember in summer we used to sleep outside on you know, mattresses with a mosquito net around it. Mm -hmm. And like the, I remember like the compound we lived in and that kind of stuff. And like, because there was different like, different groups of people like they live around each other so i remember that and then there was like there was a river we used to always go down there and swim life in kakuma refugee camp and international responses to the refugee crisis also had longer term consequences for women and their families yeah my children go there it, it, it was a time when lost boys go there so from their story because there are many ambushes and running and in, in southern Sudan. When we came from Ethiopia, so many children lost on the way. So my kids, I didn't mention it there, but they were lost for some days. So, and we find them again. So from their stories in the camp, because they were NGOs responsible, young kids to go for studies. So from their stories, of losing on the way for some days, so they accept the application because they were taking young people, not, not families. That's why they are there in America and up here. I supposed to go with them, but they don't want families. They then want young people to go and study there. So four of my kids are there in America. That's why they are there and I'm here. And I like it here. Yeah. I had to hide the emotions. I realized that, especially with the women who have, um, who are widows especially um i've seen that in a lot in sudanese community but yeah other than that they don't really they don't talk about it it's just it's something that they've kind of just swept underneath the rug like it's happened and they're just trying to move on a lot of people find it's like it's scary a bit because you're like you've been through all this but yet you know you don't show it like you're moved on and you're like you just you live like it's never happened these are the stories of ordinary women caught up in extraordinary circumstances. Their courage and resilience centres around those extensive family bonds at the heart of South Sudanese culture. For many, they are also sustained by a deep Christian faith, which continues to bind them together in their new lives in Australia. I'm Jennifer Huxley, and this is episode one of Savannah to Suburbia, South Sudanese Australian Stories. In the next episode, we'll hear some of the historical and political background to this war and hear from some of those who lived through the first civil war that lasted for some 16 years, from 1956 to 1972, and the subsequent 11 years of peace until a second civil war broke out in 1983. 
Thank you to Ashak Kawai for permission to use songs from her album of Cows, Women and War. We acknowledge Orly Stern's 2011 paper, This is How Marriage Happens Sometimes, Women and Marriage in South Sudan, as a source for this episode. For further information about the series and full source references, or to contact us or subscribe for free to the series, go to MorningsideSoundProductions.com. Young did you turn it?